I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome all. Welcome to this. It is the Infrequent Flying Podcast pilot episodes. As always, I am joined by our three pilots. Godders, how are you? I'm all right, mate. Doing very well. Despite the weather. Excellent. Parky, are you there? Parky is here, and I'm all right, despite the weather. Excellent. (laughs) And Duncan, how are you faring, sir? I'm a bit tired, and I've got a bit of coronavirus, but only a bit. Excellent. In one one nostril only. So you might say you're a bit under the weather. (laughs) Yes, a little (laughs) under the weather. Right, well, if only we had some sort of theme to talk about today. Um, before we do, has anyone been up to anything rather exciting? Oh, I think we all have, haven't we? I haven't. Have oh. you not? <laughs> well, that's good. I, I, I actually went flying for a change. Did you? With who? I've where? done several transatlantic flights in the 787, which I've never been on before. Uh, anyone been on the 787? Is that the Dreamliner? It's like, right, so yeah, hang I... on a sec. Hang on a second. Hang on. Right, so this is when I ask, this, it's like when I ask my, uh, you know, my, my students, it's like, right, so you're about to go on his first flight. What, what flying have you done before? Uh, well, I've been on holiday. Well, that doesn't count. It's like you saying, I've been flying, I've been in the back of a 787. Yeah, that's very that fair. Count. Sat that, there in first I, class, I sipping really your champagne. I agree with Mason, but he does have quite a good point there, Goddard. No, I was just talking to you about how I got to the place where I went flying. Oh, and, Ooh, the 787s have big windows, don't they? Enormous windows. So like the big round window off a play school. Anyway, but it took me to America where I went to Red Flag. We're not going to bang on about Red Flag tonight because uh, I think we've done that all. But it was flipping brilliant to go there. And I got a, uh, a trip in a Voyager um, and watched lots of F-18s jousting around the uh, the basket at the back of the aeroplane, trying to look cool in there. Well, I mean, some of those Hornets did look very cool. It was the uh, the Australians were there. They had uh, two CD models. Do we need um, to explain to before we crack off into the uh, the minutia of it what jousting around the basket means? Because some of our less aviation minded listeners, if there are any, probably <laughs> might not know what that, both of them. <laughs> your mum and dad. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I had no idea what jousting around the basket was until I thought well, about so it. Mason so Jay, was an so... expert at it. JB, have you seen medieval jousting? Yes. Right. Well, no, obviously not in the flesh, but you're aware of someone charging headlong with a big thing sticking out, trying to hit something at speed. Parky's well, exactly... seen it in the flesh. I was about to say, Parky's told me all about it. 
<laughs> so Parky was when... one of the page boys that held the horse. Here's your horse, knight. My lord. My lord. Um, so when you are air-to-air refueling, the tanker, in this case the Voyager, um, streams a hose out the back with a little basket on there to stabilise it. And you press a button or flick a switch or whatever it happens to be, and a probe comes out of your aeroplane, and you have to go and put the probe in the basket. Easy, right? Except you're both doing 300 miles an hour, and it's a bit turbulent. So anyone who doesn't get it in there the first time and then doesn't miss gracefully drop, come back, and start again is someone who is jousting because generally they're staring right at the tip of the probe, and they're trying to fly that thing into the basket, and it just wobbles all over the place the aeroplanes are thrashing up and down and uh, it looks quite exciting and i must admit having seen mason joust quite a lot from a fighter a fighter how you're right you've got ejection you. seat how dare, dare you <laughs> so i don't know some... seat, but it's very different when you're sat on that massive aeroplane full of fuel and there's a fighter very very close that's thrashing up and down so i take my hat off to those tanker guys so there's two things here which i don't really understand and one of them i really don't understand and the other one well maybe it's just a stupid idea but first of all i can't believe that that's not automated now i thought there'd be an automated program for fighter pilots to connect to baskets basically that that so seems like the ultimate the, the ultimate for me the american way of doing it is different so F-16 for me and Goddard's, we had a kind of hole <laughs> that we opened up just sort of in the top of the fuselage behind the thing, and you flew underneath the tanker. So you could only actually refuel one at a time, but you flew underneath the tanker. There were some lights, weren't there? Something about University of Arizona rings a bell, but up and down and azimuth or something or other. And you flew into a position where the lights were in the right place. And then there was a mate who flew the boom into you. And he plugged you, as it were. Yes. And that was it. And you just flew around. So that was pretty automated. And generally, they, you know, the mate would plug you first time, as long as you were vaguely stable. But with the... Because we fuel on the wing, and you know, back in the day, you'd refuel three at a time under the centre line as well. With the, uh, you know, it's just you, like God says, it's you. You mark one eyeball, try not to over control, and especially, I mean, the, the times that you you really feel the pressure is when maybe your formation was a bit late to the tanker. There's already another formation there. You blag in because you're squealing because you're short of fuel, and you can see all these eyes watching you, praying that you're going to miss, and it is that. Generally, if you get in first time, it's pretty cool. But if you if you accidentally miss it or you start to look at the basket and just do the wrong technique, it is very easy to look a bit of a pumper on the tank. Just on that part. Can you see them watching you, Parky, or can you feel them watching you? Because if you can see them watching you, you're looking in the wrong place. You ought to be concentrating on where that basket is, mate. You can actually see them watching you from the tanker at times, can't you, on the wing? You know, yes. you yeah, yeah. P- pointing. A little <laughs> no. You're right. No, you can feel. You <laughs> can feel those eyes on you. Have any? You, you can definitely say those big eyes and that look of screaming, silent screaming behind those thick, big round windscreens on the front of the tanker. <laughs> Have any of you ever heard of a guy just running out of fuel, literally not being able to tank and running out of fuel? Yeah. Well, yeah. what happens then? Do they have to land so somewhere? The first time I ever tanked, we were it was two Phantoms on a TriStar. And I can picture it. And I was with, I'll mention his name. I was with a guy called Hoot. So we joined the squadron together. We did an F-15 exchange. 
Anyway, we went up to the tanker together, and we're just, I think, I guess it was dual, so you've got another pilot in the back of a, a, a two-sticker. Anyway, it's kind of like, he's sort of chats you through, it'll be all right, just have a bit of a plug. And he went in, and you can, I think we've discussed it before, PIO, pilot-induced oscillation. So he just gone a little bit, oh, I need to go up, no down, no up, no down. And I remember he went first and I watched him and he got into this PIO and he got beyond the vertical. So he <laughs> was beyond 90 nose down, quite close to the tanker behind it. And eventually just flopped, disappeared. And from the back seat was like, we're just going to go home now. Uh, and that was it. <laughs> Gave up tanking, and I remember thinking, this does look quite difficult, this tanking malarkey. But, uh, yeah, I've definitely seen boys, and, you know, they rip probes off and done, you know, some shenanigans on the tanker. And, uh, you know, you clearly have to have enough fuel to be able to, uh, you know, divert to some airfield. You you work that out, JB. So do you? So you don't just run out of fuel? No. Although... Although when I, I I was the reviewing officer for a graduation up at Valley the other day, and I told him a couple of flying dits and you know what the lessons were out of them, but um, I did tell him one of when we were in Iraq, we were refueling over northern Turkey, and it was uh, after a strike had gone in, they were coming back out, and all the diversions had uh, had gone red. So the um, I think the next nearest was flying back to Turkey an hour away. And the guys who had come out had no fuel left. And it was at the same point that all the radios had failed because the crypto, the, the, uh, um, the crypto keys that they put in the radios, um, it ticked over midnight uh, GMT and the wrong key was in the radios. So the, the uh, E3, the AWACS, the one with the big Frisbee on the front, went what we call dark, i.e. no radar control for all of us. So we all had to find our own tankers in cloud in massive snowstorms at night um, just on the Iraqi border. And as I pitched up, so I'd flown from Turkey, as I pitched up with my wingman, you know, we didn't, we didn't have enough, we had enough gas to get back to, to insulate, but these guys then pitched in off of the strike that they'd been on, and one of the guys didn't have enough gas for about the next 10 minutes. You know, he was down to, well, I don't know, a 1,000 pounds in this spiper, which was nothing. That was min landing fuel on a, on a beautiful, clean day. So we all had to come up with a plan where we cycled in and out. But he sounded very, very, very tense on the, uh, uh, on the radio because we could speak to each other. We just couldn't speak to the, uh, speak to the AWACS. So um, I thought, I genuinely thought if this guy hadn't taken any fuel or, a, you know, they mucked it up, that we were going to see someone, you know, disappear and try and land at a snowbound airfield or, you know, eject over southern Turkey somewhere or eastern Turkey. Hmm. Dunk, what's your tanking story? Uh, <clears throat> one of the most, one of the most uh, exciting moments was actually trying to get out of Goa. So we'd been working with the Indian Navy, um, and um, we'd been uh, operating off the aircraft carrier, but then we had to deploy uh, some of the aircraft ashore. So we had four Harriers ashore along with the VC-10 tanker. But the monsoon hit early, um, and we weren't able to get out. And uh, the naval commander of the base that we were operating from said, no, 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 you cannot get airborne in this. We've lost Harriers. We just have never seen them again. You cannot get airborne in this weather. And, and that it was it's really interesting going around the world. And, you know, although we think we have fairly extreme hit, weather here in the UK, um, 
we, we really don't. And uh, when you go and operate in places that get hit by weather like the the monsoons, then it really sort of brings it home as to quite how severe it can be. Airplanes just don't come back because they flew into a cloud. Wow. Um, so we um, we waited for four days, and on the final day, uh, I say the final day, it was you know the fourth day that we'd been there. The captain of the base comes up and says, go now, you must go now, you've got half an hour. And I said to the VC-10 tank uh, uh, captain, can you get it airborne in half an hour? He went, yep, we're off. So we'd already, you know, we'd briefed exactly, you know, where we were going. We'd done it four days in a row. So we all leapt off to our aeroplanes. Uh, and he'd said just before he went, he said, all I need is, I think it was 700 feet, I need 700 feet to retract the flaps before you get in. So we had to... Um, the cloud was, they said, oh, no, the cloud's at, uh, at 900 feet. You'll be fine, and you can probably see where it's going. Um, so we all got in, and we had four Harriers, and what we did is we launched them off down the runway first and then looped back round, um, still at about, uh, well, it, it turned out over the airfield, it was uh, about 700 feet, the cloud base. So we all stayed at about 500 feet, all looped back round as the tanker rolled as well, and we had to get in on the tanker, before it pulled up into the monsoon. Um, and as Goa Airfield is right on the coast, uh, if, if, if you didn't know, right on the coast, so as the, the VC-10 launches out over the sea, he doesn't have 700 feet. The cloud base is getting lower. And so these four Harriers scream into close formation on this uh, VC-10 as he's saying, I can't do anything about it, boys. I've got to get the flaps up. And uh, so this air, this aeroplane, as flaps retract, is pitching as these four Harriers join, and then we plop up into the thickest cloud I have ever known. So thick stayed. they were fishing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and then we tanked in this. We were in super close formation for the next I think, three hours, and then just easing out and making sure you didn't lose sight to get onto the basket tank to take a bit of fuel and then get back into formation before eventually we came out the other the other side heading towards saudi arabia Oof. it was quite a tense is, is, is that not how they flew the f-35s over obviously without the weather but just continually rotating onto the tanker yeah yeah but it's it's so much easier when you've got a radar jb i was just about to say exactly of course that. they know, don't I, do they I, I, you know exactly the harrier um, you know, I know exactly what Dunk has talk, been talking about there. You know, on on occasion, in fact, you know, during the the Baltic stuff in the in the 90s, we'd be in some of the thickest cloud, and it is horrific when you have to drop then behind, and you're essentially following the ho the hose down and and keeping a glimpse of the airplane because, as Dunk says, as soon as you lose it, that's it, you're out. You have a breakaway procedure, and without a radar, you're never going to find the bloody thing again. Um, whereas with a radar, you break out, you come, you reacquire it, and then you can close back in until you get visual. Oh my and god! Of course, that must, in that, that weather, must have added a lot you, of stress. Just knowing if you did break out, that was you're probably not. You know, if the cloud is that thick and for that, you know, I don't know, for a few hundred miles, you, you're kind of stuffed, aren't you? Yeah, you radar. are. What and was that? Don't, then, don't you're then alone and unafraid on your own, going right. Well, I'll go back to an airfield that I know the weather's. Not brilliant at. Of course, we had a diversion there, but you know it's going to be a miserable trip back. Doug, were you the GR five at the time? No, a GR um, three seven, probably a GR nine. GR nine. Oh wow! So I mean, that's quite an advanced bit of kit. Do you not? Do you not, do you not have any sensors that you can use in that? Radar, JB. 
Uh, you didn't Aaron, you'll have to both say that again because I think you stepped on each other. Parky, what was your banter? My banter was the GR9 still didn't have a radar. No, ours didn't. No, it didn't have a radar. But you didn't have any other sensors that you could rely on, no? No, not that would help you in that situation. I mean, you had things like TACAN, so you you had a range to, to where this might be as long as it was working, as long as the TACAN was working. Uh, but other than that, no, not very much. Bloody hell. Yeah, that is a bit hairy. Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a fair few tanker stories, actually. But um, anyway, who who hasn't told their tanker well, stories? I, you got it. Well, Hang on. We well, from what I remember, this is just a question about what has what has God has been up to. So that nicely concludes that God has went on a voyager. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, thank you to One One Squadron for um, uh, for getting us up. It was a lovely trip, beautiful, day. and uh, you know, really different. I hadn't done a red flag from obviously that vantage point up the front of an A three thirty. Um, really interesting to see that they've got Link sixteen on there now, so you know they can watch the mission as it's going on, um, and. Um, really good for those guys because they can anticipate now when people are going to ping out of, the, of, I'm doing the inverted commas, the war, to you know catch them and take them to the right place as well. Uh, they were getting text messages on that data link um, as well, you know, telling them where to be, different things that were going on in the mission. Um, and we had Lightning's F-18Gs, the Growlers, the electronic attack aircraft from both the, the, uh, the U.S. Navy and the uh, Australians, F-18Ds from the Australians, um, Typhoons from 41 Squadron, and uh, F-35s from 617. So it's really, really interesting. Have any of you ever been on the receiving end of one of those electronic warfare aircraft? I mean, what do they do? What kind of effect do do, do they put out if they're in in your area? Yeah, they they jam your radar. Yeah. So instead of easily readable dots that are targets or contacts on your radar it just looks like someone's been sick on it so you're flying about right and then you'll know one of these things is in your area because you can't see your radar what so that is a planning consideration when you are so that big red flag briefing and the planning and those sorts of things in order that you don't get you're aware of the term fratricide right you know shooting yeah, yeah, yeah. people well, you, you can have uh, electronic fratricide as well, where even in fighter radars, you are accidentally, because you happen to be operating on the same frequency, jamming each other. So you make sure that all of this is set up. And if you're near a growler or a prowler, as it was back in the day, um, then you, you, know, you just have to be aware of when they are transmitting and what they're doing. I mean, it's fairly specific what they do. They don't just blast electronic warfare trons into the uh, into the atmosphere you know they're fairly specific in their job but you have to be aware of it because you know some kit may or may not work in around that area so uh, and maybe the radars quite clever they try and find a you know a, a cleaner frequency etc you know they can hop around so ah you're so, you're, so, you're, so, so you're quite quiet Marco. so um so your radars are continually changing frequency to avoid this, and they, presumably, if you're wargaming against them, are trying to change their frequency to stop your frequency. Yeah. Don't tell him, Pike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing, yes. Interesting. Can I, can, I just, can I just quickly add the fact that what I liked about uh, five minutes ago was that Dunk had completely forgotten Goddess's tanking story. About the <laughs> <laughs> Just mentioning that one, Goddess. Oh, and I, I did mention a point. So when that the guy who had no gas whatsoever, he was uh, 
uh, Green Mountain Boys. So I think it was uh, one of the guys from the um, Vermont National Guard. But he would, Parky, you said as long as you're pretty stable. So he was obviously quite excitable as he sat in that position before the boomer um, put the boom in. And as the boomer extended the boom and put it down to the slipway on the aeroplane, the, uh, we're sat watching this from the side. Obviously, it's night, and so you can see this all happening. He hit the outside of the uh, of the slipway, and the boom then slid all the way across the top, missed the slipway again, and down the other side. And all you could see were these sparks coming off the top. And I was thinking, large tanker, lots of fuel, sparks. Hang on a minute. Uh, <laughs> so I got a little nervous at that point as well, because by now we really didn't have enough to get back to our diversion either. So we were all committed to using this tanker. The best thing about the uh, the American system I seem to recall was that you could have a conversation with the 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 person operating the uh, the plugging thing, and you just you'd have a, a you know I remember with the Dutch boys, generally the American ones, and they'd be like, "Are you Dutch? Nope. Oh, where are you from?" And it was just slightly surreal having a damn good matter. Then oh, I've got to go. I'm full up. Yeah. Okay. See ya. Yeah, no, we well, did that I, I had Afghanistan. That. We go and uh, plug on the. I can't remember if it was KC tens or one three fives, but they had a dual system. But what was cool about it is you'd pitch up behind, and there was a centre line hose. But I, I'm sure, um, well, probably either you, but particularly you, Goddess, will remember which type this is. But the guy had a, a full patio window, so you could see him. It wasn't just a little, you know, a little portal with his face sticking out. He had a full sliding door patio window in the back of the aeroplane. Um, and KC10, the big one. KC10, yeah, is uh, it was amazing, and they took some great photos. Well, those KC10, did you? You must have tanked off a ten, uh, Parky. But when they connected through the slipway um, into the refueling receptacle at the back of the aeroplane, the the ten pretty much went clunk, and then you could feel almost yourself being flown around by this thing. You could um, go idle and just get dragged around the yeah, sky. Yeah, save some gas. You got dragged around the place. Um, but I was I, that speaking to them is really cool because that connection sets up an intercom with the guy who's sat in his patio, uh, you know, taking photos and refueling. And uh, I'm sure I've mentioned it before. I was doing this talk at the weekend actually, and I mentioned this story. But um, this was just before they stopped me flying on the combat air patrols post 9/11 over Washington D.C. I'm convinced. It was this boomer who grasped me up because uh, I went and tanked, you know, because these were quite long combat air patrols. So you go and tank a couple of times, went off to the tanker. And so one of the issues, well, one of the things was that the uh, NATO AWACS was controlling us because a lot of the American AWACS had gone to uh, to the Middle East and Afghanistan at that point, even by the sort of November, December. And uh, there was a, a Belgian controller controlling us over D.C. So it was a, a French accent. And I picked up on the, the tanker and the boomer goes, uh, hey, sir, uh, you know, how you doing? I went, hello, how are you? He went, uh, are, you, are you American, sir? He went, uh, and I said, uh, no, I'm British. He went, oh, uh, do we have many Brits flying? I went, I think I'm the only one. And he, and he said, and, and that guy in the AWACS is French. Yeah. And you could tell him inside mentally sighing going, oh, God damn it. <laughs> did you did you put on a an Eddie Izzard doing George Mason voice when you pitched up to the tank? <laughs> Always did, and and the whole time I was on the squadron. Hello. <laughs> they actually never heard you. I'm 
British. <laughs> Good Look effort. Look at those teeth as well. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, those wind. Negative. So Doug, it's the, uh, it's the ultraviolet light in here. Now, Doug, before we um, started this, did you mention you went to some sort of? Oh yes. Please tell was... me about that. Well, uh, both Parky and I went along to. And Parky uh, did it as well. It was a symposium yeah. that um, was set up. So uh, when our mate Smithy was the boss of BBMF, yes, um, he decided, uh, and rightly, that uh, we always went to a display symposium that uh, that took place every year, and we all always came out shaking our heads and going, "Oh, flipping it! That really didn't, you know, hit the uh, the points that we thought." getting everyone together and talking about uh, things should hit. It, it, it seemed to miss the point in some of the, the lectures it delivered. So, um, Just before we continue, who are you Sorry. delivering the, le- the lectures to and what's the point of them? Dunk. Dunk was delivering them. Ah, and, and to who? <laughs> so, at the, at the, you mean at the original symposium, is that what you're Yeah, I mean, what is this symposium for? Is it for me so to come di- along? Or the is display it for... symposium were, is for... Uh, both military and uh, and civilians, ah, but okay. we felt it was more for the um, uh, the display directors rather than for the display pilots. And it got better over the years, but um, the the big takeaway was we all sort of came away going, really, we could have done mu- much better. We could have done more with that. So anyway, Smithy decided that we would start our own. So because at the time we were all on the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, um, we started a warbird symposium that invited uh, military and civilian warbird uh, pilots. So Army, Navy, Air Force um, and the civilian warbird community to just come and talk about all sorts of things, whether it be uh, force landings, engine handling. The the theme is very often the same. So So we started this... I, so this strikes me when you first hear this. Thing, okay, this kind of so, sounds like a talking shop, but on the other hand, I bet this is phenomenally important because if this information isn't passed down, I don't know where you where you find it. I mean, I should presume there's still manuals to fly these things, but the practical experience must be fairly fairly rare now. Yeah, yeah, correct. And uh, you know, we you hear so people that have been around the warbird scene for years and years and years. I was just uh, in the uh, signing out to go flying today, and uh, Charlie Brown, who was there as well, um, was talking to one of the other guys about um, the fact that he was saying Merlin engines sometimes they have like a they've got some sweet spots, but they kind of run rough. And we'd had this this brief um, at the symposium that Parker and I just went to um, by the chief engineer for the Shuttleworth collection. Um, and one thing that he'd mentioned was the counterweight within engines to make sure that the whole engine was balanced. Um, and Charlie was saying um, that he didn't think there were these counterweights in a Merlin engine. Uh, and therefore, you know, potentially that was the reason why these things have these rough spots when they're, they're running. So, what- so even my point is that even someone that's been... Um, I guess Charlie's probably been in the warbird community for four decades. Do you think that's probably about right, Parky? Yeah, yeah, go with that. Yeah, so 30 or 40 years. Um, And there's things that are coming out. So you're exactly right, JB. There's things that come out of those symposium. And it's not just pilots get together. We get engineers there. um, And we had, for instance, and this one, a parachute expert um, to tell us all about... um, 
just again refresh us really we've all had this training but to talk about how the parachutes work what they're made of what you should do and why you should do it if for instance you landed in water or you were being dragged what um uh what you should release first so all of these things that people would almost take for granted and dare i say in a training system we we have to go and have a parachute br- uh, brief every six months or every year uh, but the civilian communities don't so actually them getting together and and having someone like that just reminding them of these things uh, that make a big difference in survival situations is uh, is really worthwhile yeah i, I mean I dunk the uh, the best one though and we could do with uh, a podcast with either smithy or mac was the uh, the silver spitfire they kind of gave it was meant to be half an hour on you know the stuff you want to think about if you take a spitfire around the world and it, it just, <laughs> just in case yeah and, i mean smithy was like you know matt you've got five more minutes and that's it and then matt then asked smithy well, can you just explain that and then smithy banged on for another five but it was brilliant you know didn't really want that one to finish because it was just as well as you know some some you know interesting uh you know talking about interesting weather stories it probably was weather wasn't it dunk i think was the big yeah know, just how remote yeah. the world is in certain places you know the weather and administration yeah yeah but it was just it was genuinely fascinating just the stories because it was you know with warts and all that you know they were they weren't uh, you know, trying to make it a, a pr thing they were just telling what it was like and some of the stuff they had to deal with and uh it was it was bloody interesting. It was. Uh, I, I, I had asked Smithy to come on and chat to us about it. Actually, uh, I'm sure he will at some point in the near future. It would be worth doing that. That would be brilliant. I think he's drinking a lot to forget it, so we probably need to get him on quite soon. Sooner yeah, or than no, later. I, I, I did have a couple of WhatsApps with him when he'd um, done the uh, rhubarb mission number two into northern Japan, um, and uh, we had a little, we had a little chat about, about that because we were both on the original BBMF rhubarb together. <laughs> Do you have that to explain what a rhubarb? Yeah, so a, a rhubarb was the the World War Two missions when we started going offensively into Northern Europe post Battle of Britain, and it was during the the winter it started. Was it back end of forty into forty one that we uh, we started doing it? Park. It was a bit later than that. Yeah, I, I think so. I think the boys, you know, they if there was yeah, after allowing the boys were up for it, you know, they would just take a couple of a uh, couple of aircraft and see what they found and uh, you know yeah. so they, they'd go at the... down boys and uh, strafe whatever you can see and it might be you on the worst weather day that you could get jb you know yeah. it might be a hundred foot cloud base they take off from a southern england air base like tangmere or something like that and just press at a hundred feet across the channel and go and see if they could find anything to do a bit of strafing and a, a, and a bit of annoyance i'm sure i've read about this uh, wasn't it um... uh, I probably I've probably read uh, probably talked about the story before, but um, you know, getting back, going out and coming back. I could write an entire book on going out and coming back from the Czech Republic. One for another pod if we haven't done it already. Um, where Smith, this guy Smithy, and I, having circumnavigated the largest thunderstorm I've ever seen in my entire life, it was like the beginning of for those who are old enough who've seen flash gordon and ming the merciless is playing around with the weather in the world um it was a thunderstorm like that uh and we diverted and then when we took off from there the cloud base just got lower 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 and we were schneebling around at low level in northern belgium and into france trying to find our way home to england so i have a rough idea of how terrifying one of those sorties must have been in a world war ii compass not much of a map and a stopwatch and doing it over enemy territory 
yeah. I think that that story, God, is is great. But the the bit, and I'm sure you have mentioned this on a podcast. Don't know, maybe I dreamt. But the fact that you'd had the world's spiciest soup in the Czech Republic the night before, and your tummy wasn't altogether perfect. No, I was. To use the vernacular, test firing the chocolate laser on many, many occasions during that flight. In fact, every time I landed, I had to do a reverse scramble out of the aeroplane and sprint towards the, uh, the nearest building. <laughs> um, but again, we, if I haven't covered it, we can cover that. Whole, in fact, if Smithy's on, we can talk about it because, uh, you know, from beginning to end, that was the most surreal trip detachment I have ever done, and you, Smithy and I basically fell out of the aircraft at the end of it when we landed at Collins, being crawled off to the BBMF. Well, there is. I remember seeing both you boys landed, and, and you know we sort of got the uh, the download. But I remember ending with Smithy, and I think this is right. He managed to get his visor cover trapped when he opened the he- the canopy, so he then hoiked his head fully back as he opened the canopy. And barely could sort of see, and almost had a an incident downwind, which was the final straw of this epic, epic sorting. Yes, it was yeah. exactly. And um, and when I WhatsApped him when he'd got into northern Japan, because you remember that was when Typhoon Habibis or Hagibis was coming into Japan as well. Um, he said it was even worse than that sortie, so I can't imagine. I don't know whether he, he mentioned anything, but clearly we we won't give anything away here. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it sounded pretty hairy, some of the uh, – um, and your point about it being remote, because I guess they were coming out of uh, Eastern Russia into Japan at that point. Oh, yeah, I think, just I think the time of the World Cup. The thing that I took away was yeah. if you did that sortie, Godders, every day for three months, and it was that almost continually – this is getting quite knackering, you know, juggling and, uh, you know, just, just keeping on top of everything. It, there was so many what-ifs and stuff that the boys were dealing with. You know, they were flying long legs. Can, I don't know what the longest was, uh, Dunk, but it was, you know, maybe uh, 700. Four hours, wasn't it? Yeah. substantial length. Oh, four hours. A long, long time, and they said that there was never a day, you know, it's kind of like flying from southern to northern you know uk the, the weather at some part of it was going to be interesting and finding out which bit it was how they were going to deal with that you know it, it was the, there was never an easy weather day and then obviously with all the other bits thrown in it was it was just very tiring Re- the boys came back absolutely shattered and stressful you, you know it must be it's a, fatiguing yes but the stress of actually going right off I go in a single-seat aeroplane that's 75 years old, um, and I'm going into effectively the unknown because I don't know, you know, what weather I can get and what I can't. And, you know, he did say, although we kind of always knew that we could turn around, the fact is on legs that long, well, the weather changes when you get back as well. So pretty stressful operating in those conditions, I reckon. Well, I so, a few, so a few boys, does that – do you remember Alex Henshaw – yeah. As the, uh, you know, the Cypher Merlin, uh, another one of our book club books, which is fantastic about him testing all the Spitfires that came out of Castle Bromwich. But before that, he'd written a book called Flight of the Mugull, where he set the record for UK to Cape Town um, in a Mugull aeroplane. Now, I think it was 1935, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in Steve Newjam, who I think was there at the, the conference, yeah. was he 
broke that world record only about what four years ago or something yeah uh, it, it wasn't that long ago but can you imagine in 1935 so we're only um 30 plus years so the amount of time that we've all been in the air force in a bit beyond the right brothers flying and you are flying down to cape town it properly into the unknown and all that sort of stuff um but you know that puts a different spin on it i know we always think about that sort of stuff and take it for granted but that's unbelievable well i guess a big difference there is as well maybe like pre-airfield i mean not completely pre-airfield but there's not loads of them everywhere yeah exactly Exactly. I think they they wrecked it and he prepositioned fuel in various whatever you'd call an airfield. And I mean, to me, you've seen a Mugol. It doesn't look like the easiest thing to land. There's not much of a view out the front of that that thing. Well, the um, original transatlantic, uh, well, so the craft that originally got over the Atlantic had no front windows whatsoever. Yeah, the Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, so, sorry. which is which is ridiculous. I still can't get go over that. That was hanging in an airport somewhere. Um, that I've transited through over the last few weeks, a, a model of it. Uh, and it is, it's madness. Why, why not have a window? Yeah, Well, exactly. talking of spirits of and uh, other things at the, uh, at the Warbird Symposium is that um, uh, Rolls-Royce's uh, director of flight ops, he was their chief test pilot, but director of flight ops, uh, Phil O'Dell, was there. And he gave us a presentation on what's called the uh, spirit of innovation. So it's the... A Rolls-Royce partnership um, with um, uh, with two other companies uh, developing an electric aircraft, um, and it's a it's a, just a fantastic looking machine. It's uh, quite developed... a snazzy one, isn't it? it? Looks like a racing aeroplane. Oh yeah, yeah it is. What's it well, called? It's developed from a racing aeroplane, and the idea is to break the electric aeroplane speed record and wow. climb to height record. Uh, there's two speed records. I can't remember exactly what Pod said, Parky, can you? But there was two distances, effectively. So there's two distances and a kind of height as well. Is it uh, 300, 300 knots? Is that the speed? Something like that? Something like that, yeah, yeah. And But he was talking about they're, they're hoping to do it at Farnborough in August. So um, in, in Farm, uh, at Farnborough this year. But excitingly, I know JB will be excited about this, um, I, of course... Um, spoke to them and it's uh, jones as well so steve jones is another um he's a, a red bull air racer warbird pilot just um uh, an aviator extraordinaire and he's involved in it as well and so we spoke to them and said could we come down and have a look at it with our podcast and uh, so pod said yeah of course you can come on down to farnborough so yes um, absolutely we I will think, yeah i think it'll be fascinating now uh, is this the are you talking about the a cell, I think they, they call it. Excel, yeah, yes. Isn't that a, isn't that a sleek looking aeroplane, JB? It's pretty well, cool. I'm not going to lie. It looks like. Do you know, do you know when films used to make things that they thought that's how they would look in the future? Well, this yeah. is this, this is how they well, thought. I mean, think, this is how they thought in 1940s that things would look in the future. Yeah. Hey, uh, got to stick a link to it because I've yeah, got a link I'll, out there. Put a I'll link just, on Twitter, would you? Yeah, um, just that down so that people can see it. But the, um, the <laughs> when you're talking about flying it, it's uh, you're sat so far back, and it's got the 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 little wing out front of you. They said that when it's on the ground, you literally cannot see anything. Such that they have to have a camera mounted in the front to see forward. Weaving doesn't even work. Really? So it's uh, it's quite a um, 
an interesting airplane to uh, to land. He said that when they take off, the tail comes up straight away, so you can see over the uh, see over the nose straight away. So that's not so much of a problem. But uh, it's um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting. Looking Very airplane. cool. Well, so that being able to see out leads me into um, on my travels to the US. One of the places we managed to visit, we had a. Is this a seven eight seven story? Oh, I, Negative. I hope it is. Negative. Did you get a coffee? This was about a... Did you, have, did you have a window seat? The most amazing aviation <laughs> museum I think I've been to uh, in a place called Pungo, Virginia, near Virginia Ooh, Beach. Okay. Because uh, we, we were doing some stuff um, with, the, with the US Navy. Um, and this is... It's got a 5,000-foot runway run by volunteers. But this is the place they... Uh, um, I'll have to find out the name of the guy who owns it and set it up. But here's just a quick list of just the fighters yes, that they've got there. Um, where they've got uh, a MiG-3, ME-262, Focke-Wolf 190, Spitfire Mark 9. They've got various um, P-51s, Corsair, P-40 Warhawks, um, uh, P-Shooter. And that's what reminded yep. me. So if you, you remember that little P-Shooter thing, the view out of that thing does not look good in the slightest. a massive radial engine on a, on a tiny little body. And most of these things are in flight condition as well. They've got a mosquito there that they fly. Really? Um, and Yeah, the jigs that they use for building the mosquitoes in New Zealand were taken from this place, which had a, an operating um, uh, uh, mosquito that they'd rebuilt. In one of the hangars, absolutely amazing. It's a German hangar, so they've got ME-108, uh, ME-109s, uh, the um, what's the long-nosed Focke Wolf 190, the um, the, the Dora, the, yeah, the the Dora. Um, but hanging up, they'd got hold of this guy who'd taken a load of the plans for some of the sort of Nazi. You must have seen them. Some of their crazy ideas towards the end of the war, some of which flew. And so, in that, uh, I'll tweet some photos. Some in the tops of, uh, you know, hanging a uh, life-size models of these things. You think, no way, you know, the world's biggest bomb with a tiny fighter attached to it, uh, a big delta wing thing that looks like something out of Buck Rogers, um, you know, push-pull type stuff, flipping amazing. And then. You go into their World War One hangar. I've never seen so many World War One aircraft uh, together. And again, all of these are flyable. Some unbelievably historic aircraft Amazing. they've got. In. The, first, the first airplane that flew off an aircraft carrier. All of this sort of stuff. Um, the guys who took us round uh, both uh, one was uh, an XF four pilot, another was X four Wild Weasel, uh, and F fifteen guy. So knowledgeable about all of these things and just the World War One stuff about. Um, you know, post First World War, there was a load of the, I can't even remember the name of the aeroplane, but it was the U.S. Mail that bought up a load of these aeroplanes that ended up being making flying so accessible across America because they ended up flying these these mail runs uh, well, with these aircraft. That's the start of uh, of Pan Am. Do, do you know yeah. that Pan Am yeah, was exactly. um, just a mail service uh, to Cuba, I think, Florida to Cuba. Yeah. Uh, oh, they've got a Fokker trimotor in there as well. They had they'd taken. I can't remember the name. There's an air for the Humber. I'll try and Google it before we finished. Um, where the guy had bought, so it was a World War II U.S. Army airfield. Sweet. He'd bought the control tower, taken it down brick by brick, and they'd rebuilt it next to the uh, this 5,000 foot airfield, uh, grass airfield that they've got there, and put where it back up. Where is the again. airfield, Goddess? Where is it? it, it it's in. Um, uh, Virginia. Amazing so uh, when, Nor- when Norfolk Naval Air uh, and um, 
Oceana is. Yeah. It's about 10 miles down the road from Oceana. Um, it's called Pungo. And it is it is amazing. It was something like twelve bucks to get in, but just one of the best afternoons I've had in so a museum like that. Do they have much in the way of sets, century series, that kind of stuff? No. Is this it all... Is all it's mainly all stuff that you could fly into That's incredible. this airfield. Um, and they've got bigger things, you know, Catalinas, um, you know, a bit more naval aircraft as well. Some of those were we didn't get to see them because we didn't have time, but just an amazing day out. So if anyone happens to be in Virginia at any point in the uh, in the next few years, you have to go and see this place. Well, as we're going on about museums, I'll add my own museum trip because I went to the Avro Museum, which is nowhere near the scale of the one that you went to. But it's just outside of Manchester in, I want to say Wharton, but it's not Wharton because that's... A- you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Preston, where on earth is it? Woodford. um, Woodford, thank you, Woodford. And they have an actual full-size Vulcan there, which is, I mean, still now, I mean, I don't think that thing's moved for God knows how long, is still still a breathtaking piece of equipment. It's amazing. Back in the day, JB, there used to be a a big air show there. Did they really? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure, do do the Reds there, Dunk? Uh, I don't think I did. Well, sad. I, seem, I seem to recall definitely doing an F three. So maybe it kind of it sort of fizzled out two thousand then something like that. But it was, uh, it was it was a good air show. So sadly, that airfield now is basically a housing estate. But they've yeah. kept a little bit of it where the Avro Museum is, and it's bloody brilliant. I mean, if you want some real, I mean, it's very very small. They've got a handful of cockpits. They've got the. Uh, Lancaster cockpit wasn't that bothered about that, so I, I ignored it. They had a Nimrod uh, cockpit, which is bloody brilliant, and uh, a few options on um, on that. And also, as well as the Vulcan outside, they have a Vulcan cockpit inside. And the thing which astonished me of all the things that, that they, in fact, two things that astonished me. One was that somebody, and I don't know if you boys have seen this before, they bothered to build soup warmers 
that's how the, how the crew fed themselves. They had soup and they had these little canisters which you put a can in and over the course of 45 minutes it will make your soup kind of warm. <laughs> kind of warm. Yeah, that not was the last thing you're worrying about having just dropped a nuke. Yeah, but I just thought like what kind of madman thought that this would be a, a good use of taxpayers' money to de- to develop a small cylinder which can only hold soup? But th- there it was. And the other one which I thought was really cool was the, um, I think they call it the rat lever. Does that, does that ring any bells with you guys? Ram air turbine. That's the one, yes. So as soon as power fails, they pull this thing. And then the turbine falls down, and then that will generate enough power for your essential systems, which is cool and terrifying. And was that a rat? Can you remember, JB? Was that for the electrics or for the hydraulics or both? I, I'm going to say it was for the electrics, uh, just because of the way it, it was explained, explained to me. And the reason I say it's rat is because they literally had a rat sitting on, on the lever. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It, it, that bizarrely, the, uh, the dear old Phantom was exactly the same. It had an electric rat. Did it really? Yeah. Did did Probably. you did you ever have to use it to train with? Yeah, you know, if you had a Jenny failure, you know, because I, I, the uh, the the first Phantoms I flew operationally well, on Swadron was uh, they were the old Navy ones, so they didn't have any batteries. So you know, if you did lose your generators from the engines, you know, you were doomed. So you uh, you stuck this uh, little electric rat and this little pellet into the airflow, and it. Uh, it made your made your electrics work. Oh my Bloody god! Clever. Did it? Did the Hawk have one, or am I making that up? That was hydraulic. Yeah, the, hydraulic uh, on the Hawk. Yeah. yeah. So here's an observation which um, I thought was kind of interesting to me, but probably not to you guys. I sat in the cockpit of a Nimrod, and I sat in the flight engineer seat, and I I was wondered what the flight engineer was looking at, and what amazed me. Is most of the dials on um, on there are based fuel dials. They've got some like twelve fuel tanks, or something. it might be eight fuel tanks. I don't know. But there's a lot of fuel tanks, and it's just amazing to see all these analog controls because presumably that is exactly the sort of job which you want an iPad to do now, or something an interface like that, rather than. Or you don't. Or you don't even touch it, JB. Yes. You just get a, you know in in Typhoon. There's a fuel page that you very rarely. You know, you bring up every now and again. It's not up there the whole time, and all you're doing is checking that the auto system is feeding the fuel into the right places. Yeah, but that I, was their job back I, in the day. I thought it was amazing that there was a guy. They were training a guy to drain from the fuel tanks in a basically a, a systematic way. Yeah, yeah. You know, so for the longest time they were um, back to airliners again at eight, not on the seven eight seven. But um, what is the, the fuel system day, on the seven eight seven? I think. I think didn't. British Airways only got rid of their last flight engineer in the last 20, 15, 20 years or something ridiculous. I remember yeah, flight I engineers. Back, back in the yeah, days right. where you were allowed to visit the cockpit, when I was a kid, I remember flight engineers then. They were definitely there. Yeah, like, for sure. Like and off again, of we had JB. in the Air Force on certain types until pretty recently. It just seems like such an antiquated job. Well, I guess that's the, the complexity of the systems on, on those bigger aeroplanes back then was such that, they well, they didn't have automation, so they needed someone to do it so the pilot could concentrate on flying because he didn't have any automation or very little anyway. Yeah. He needed someone to uh, steer around the place, so he had a navigator, and they needed someone to look after the generally four engines, so fly engineer. So it makes sense. It's just as things became more automated. Oh, it then, definitely uh, makes sense. 
Yeah. JB, I flew this. Uh, I flew this mate in a Spitfire, and I asked him, "Have you flown any other aircraft?" And he went, "Oh yeah, I have. I've only I've only ever flown one type. You know, physically got my hands on it and flown it." So what was that then? He, um, it was Concorde. <laughs> You've only ever flown one type of aircraft. It's Concorde. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how does that work? Because oh, I was uh, I was the uh, the chief flight engineer for Concorde for the whole program. Never fairly, but really got into Concorde. And then when we were trying to flog it and sort of take Hesseltine and take Concorde around the world, the boys used to just let me fly it. You know, it was great. Amazing. Sort of stuff. And it was like, dude, you've got to fly the Spitfire and then you have to promise me you never fly another aircraft. Maybe the space shuttle, if you can get your hands on that. But do not fly another aircraft because what a stat is a... F- Two aircraft he's ever flown now, Spitfire and Concorde. That's incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah, Ooh. Good point. So that was another thing. I can't remember whether I mentioned last time transatlantic travel and I rewatched the right stuff. And the last couple of times... What, the talk show? <laughs> yeah, Matthew Wright, that's the one. Not the one about fighter pilots in the space race. <laughs> oh, right, OK. Um, yeah, and the, um, and the Neil Armstrong documentary... Uh, you know, this first man, which I thought was brilliant, but the Neil Armstrong documentary is really cool because it is documentary footage of him doing his test flying and um, and uh, and that sort of stuff. And it is unbelievable, isn't it, when you look at how cool he was. And they had the heart rate monitor him, and it, on a, a heart rate monitor on him, and it only ever went up to about eighty-five or ninety when. He had about 30 seconds of fuel left, and he's overshot the landing area because there's big rocks in the way in the Apollo um, module and ends up putting this thing down, you know, with the fuel caption flashing in thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles from Earth where one mistake and that's it, you're, you're toast. Honestly, I think, he, I think he goes manual, doesn't he, Goddard? You know, it yeah. should be sort of fairly automated. He's like, no, don't like the look of that. And it's like, there's no fuel. And what, what did he sort of, when he sort of says the eagle has landed and he shuts down, they, they, they've got just so, so little fuel. Because they needed, obviously, some fuel to get back to the, uh, the, the, the capsule up in space, didn't they, that was orbiting the moon. But it's just the coolest dude in the world. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And then, I mean, there wasn't a documentary about it, but uh, in one of the museums I've been to recently in the, in the US or in the last six months, uh, oh, it's the uh, Budvar Hazy one outside of uh, Dallas Airport. They've got a space shuttle in there. Ooh. And uh, 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 have any of you seen the shuttle close up? Yeah. No. It is enormous. Yeah. I have no idea how they managed to crane that thing onto the back of, uh, of a jumbo and fly that. But can you imagine doing that? Uh, I, I think it was mostly automatic, but essentially the engine off landing from space. I mean, it's hard enough. You know, getting it right the first few times to do it in a chippy, let alone a chipmunk, let alone a space shuttle, where, you know, uh, high key is 98,000 feet. Ridiculous. <laughs> there was, um, were you there, Dunk? There was a, a space shuttle commander at Goodwood when we were there one time. What? And, and we were no, chatting, that, was, and he... that, was, that was me, mate. Yeah. He was the, the coolest, and there was some it was along the lines, you know, from the sort of the launch. And if it all went wrong, there were options, you know, to sort of ditch the big fuel tanks, rockets, 
and, and you know, essentially glide the thing in and, and where your options were. And it was like Florida, and after 30 seconds or something like oh, that... Oh, I, I know the answer to this. Your, your option was Europe. It's Spain. <laughs> it was just... Yeah, Spain. It was... Southern um, Spain, yeah. isn't it? Take, Rota, take, I think. Take it to Spain, glide it in, and it just hands-on, that's your forced landing. Oh, that my is God. super cool. Isn't it? <laughs> um, now... yeah, do, do you remember when we bumped into him? I, he had that badge... And we thought initially it said Mac three, um, and then it actually said Mac thirty. <laughs> <Went there. laughs> That's, That's quite yeah, he headbutted you when you said Mac three, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> so I went to a museum as well. If we're talking about museums, Parky cleared off after because we had this uh, this symposium we were talking about at uh, it was held at uh, Shuttleworth, and um, so uh, after the symposium had finished. I took the opportunity um, to to go and look around the collection. And uh, Jim Schofield, uh, a test pilot extraordinaire, um, who is chief pilot down at Boltby Spitfire Academy at the moment, but also flies for the Shuttleworth uh, collection, kindly said he would uh, show myself and a couple of the other boys around. Uh, And it it is just a fantastic collection of aeroplanes there as well. Uh, You know, everything from SE5, um, they've got... um, uh, a, a hawker hind uh, a gladiator these kind and it just to to see them is fantastic but to know that actually in the summer they wheel them all out and fly them and even they had there they had um you know some of the really old edwardian aircrafts they've got the uh, the blerio that parky used to fly uh, and they've got uh... <laughs> it can be a real handful in a crosswind yeah, yeah, I bet. I tell you what, Parky, though, in all seriousness, what they also had, because I think when we went down to um, Hendon to the Air Force Museum and they had one of those um, gliders that the air cadets used to build, and you said that you'd built one where you sit at the front. There's nothing else. There's no combing. You're just sat at the front. Do you remember? Do you, you said you'd built one of those in the air cadets or something. That was my first trip. I mean, no, just to interject, when I was... Probably, I think, 15 or 16. Maybe I was just about to get a flying scholarship or something rather. We used to, cadets, build this glider. So it was very string and sort of uh, just a very thin tube of fuselage. So the seat was wider than just the sort of scaffolding poles and stuff like that. And they would put about 20 cadets in this pool, the biggest elastic band bungee, and they would have these leading-edge slats that they put on the leading edge of the wing. And you would be fired at the football pitch at the, at the school in Hastings with this poor little cadet who's very sort of the slats. And I was on this thing, and the sort of the sergeant who was probably really experienced because he was 16 and a half, when he knew, <laughs> I think, how to fly. Let's take the slats off the glider. So the elastic band, and they fired me across the football pitch. And I swear I got to about sort of 10, 15 feet. And I, I flew for, you know, 10 seconds worth and sort of smacked it back down before I went into the goal. It was like, <laughs> woo! And they were kind of like, we've never seen that before. And that was it. We put the glider away. <laughs> we better, we better so when we joked away. about being there for the Wright brothers, this sounds very similar, Parky. Very oh, similar. I'm trying to, I'm trying to look My up eyes exactly must have been like saucers. Uh, right, gents, I just realised we've nearly been recording an hour, and if we're not careful, we're not going to be able to answer any questions again. That, right, uh, got some. Uh, this week. Now, I think I'm going to lead off with a quick question. Um, 
After going to the museum, one of the things that I noticed was how uncomfortable every cockpit was. Uh, have you guys ever met someone who designs aircraft? And have you ever got to the bottom of why every cockpit seems to be a complete afterthought of what the aircraft should be doing? <laughs> um, you kind of get used to it, don't you? I mean, they're not the comfiest places in the world. The but, Vulcan uh, was horrendous. The Which, the, which was? Uh, the Vulcan. Now, that's a weird... I, I would get if the F-35 was uncomfortable because you've got to land it on a carrier in this space. But there was no constraint with the Vulcan whatsoever. No. No, they've got more. They have got more comfortable over the years, and I think that's down to ejection seat design. So I remember flying the Jet Provost, and that you were almost leaning forward in that flipping ejection seat. It was horrifically uncomfortable, from what I remember. But you know, you put a, a padded seat cover on the top of it or whatever, and it just ends up being one of those things. You soon get used to it, and you soon not comfy uh, or you, you you soon feel pretty comfortable in, in, in your little cocoon in there um but it, it, i think it was absolutely to do with such shape weight uh and everything that they needed to get the, the seat out of the airplane rather than the space that they had well did the oh god so it must be it must it must be a little bit that the aircraft was built for a you know a purpose of Vulcan bomber to drop a nuclear missile, so they, they you know the last thing they considered was pilot comfort, wasn't it? It's like right, we we won't we don't build it around the cockpit so that the pilots are comfortable. It's sort of like right, we've built the bomber, that'll do it. Right, where do we stick the pilot? I think that's I'd I'd have gone the other way around. I'd have I'd have made it so at least the crew are kind of comfortable. So do you know the? The Russian aircraft, nicknamed Platypus, the one with the big flat nose. And they sit side by side. Oh, yes, yes. It's yeah, the, it's the attack aircraft related to the SU-27. Oh, yeah, yeah, It's SU-35 fullback. That's the one, the fullback. Um, that sits apparently side to side, and they have a chemical toilet behind them. <laughs> now, that, now, that's luxury. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to sand toilet. Down, though, the first time anyone's described... A Rakasan toilet as luxury. That is, that is luxury. There is that, I mean, com- compared to the Vulcan, believe you me. Anyway, let's get to some questions. Uh, so first one from our mate Ted. Ah. Ted Higgins, tweeting Ted58, um, ex-Formula ex 1 mechanic and general legend. Um, when was the first time all of you thought, blimey, brackets, used a decent word, this feels fast, and what was it? Plus, how old is Parky? Um <laughs> So when did you think flipping it this feels fast? I'm I know you're I know where you're going with this. Well, it can't be the Harrier, obviously. Uh, I am younger than Ted. Uh, for me, I reckon uh, it was uh, putting the burners in on the T thirty eight when I was uh, doing pilot training in. 1985, and uh, it was because, you know, it had reheat, so it was like a little F5, and uh, it had a good kick. And I, I can picture my first trip and just feeling that sort of stud as reheat. Sorry, Dan, reheat is a thing that gives you more thrust in an aircraft by injecting fuel in the back end, and uh, it was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> loved it. Uh, which which reminds me, just quickly, um, I'm writing these things down. I'm definitely going to tweet them out on the pilot episodes uh, side. But um, I, I liked it the other day. I meant to retweet it, but completely forgot about it, so I'll be able to find it. But it was old video of testing with a Harrier and plenum chamber burning. 
And it was unbelievable because this Harrier is in, it's it's on it's strapped to this massive machine in the hover to stop it buggering off at two hundred thousand miles an hour when it goes wrong. But you see the nozzle down, and it's the the nozzles have afterburner in, which is brilliant. Whoa! Yeah, there you that go. That sounds Parky. way cooler than water. What about <laughs> you, Junkie? <laughs> Uh, they must have had a conversation at some point. So, right, boys, we can either keep the fire or the water. What do we keep? <laughs> Damn it. What, what, felt, what felt fast to you, Mason? A glider? A Cessna? Yes. A, it's a, a, a small gyrocopter, I think, is the fastest thing I've ever flown in. No, of course... Um, did you know, the bizarre thing is that although I've had the pleasure of going to Personic with, uh, with Parkinson and uh, with a few others in a number of different aeroplanes, um, I think I've had this conversation before. It's a real anti-climax because you're not doing supersonic at, you know, 100 feet. You're actually up in the ether generally. Um, and so you can't really – you don't get any impression of speed other than the, the numbers telling you you're going fast. But, and this is where I contradict Parco, is the once when we started doing um, operational low flying, so when I did in my career, which is now flying down to 100 feet at, um, you know, well, as you say, the Harrier couldn't go that fast, but even 480 knots at 100 feet uh, feels fast. And so doing that type of flying, um, I, I know you've both done it, and uh, you'll you'll remember that there's very little margin for error because going that fast at that height, you have to uh, you have to have your wits about you, and uh, I think that's probably the biggest impression of speed that I've that I've had. Yeah, I, I'd agree, I'd agree with you there, Dunk. I think your mind's almost like Parky, where I was pretty amazed by the jet Provost being let loose in a in a sort of 300 mile an hour jet when you're 18, 19 years old. But actually, it didn't. I don't remember it feeling particularly slippery. Whereas, as soon as you got into the Hawk, and you went off and did your your first solo, which was uh, a lap round Anglesey as quickly as you could go, um, that's when I remember thinking, "Hang on, this is a little bit fast." Um, and you're right. Later on in your career, it then it then becomes. Um, you know, all relative, and and sometimes just a number. I remember almost eking Mach two out of a uh, an F sixteen in a uh, in a red flag. Um, didn't quite get there. One of my big regrets. But yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, for sensation of speed, you have to be low, and you know, never get bored. We, we were allowed to do on the display. I think we're allowed six hundred and twenty knots uh, at a hundred foot, and you know, especially if the reds were all lined up, just as you did the brake to land. It was just brilliant, you know. You, you are trucking, and the the F three. I don't know if you ever get a backseat trip in tornado, but stupidly quiet. I know I bang on about this a bit, but incredibly quiet at ridiculously fast speed. But you definitely get that sensation of speed when you're that. Uh, when you're. Well, do, you know, do you remember, Parky? What what you hear more than anything at super high speeds, i.e., um, supersonic, is the airflow over the canopy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right, we'll move on. Um, <laughs> here's a good one. Matt Wright. Um, when you're not flying, do you get grumpy and need, in capital letters, to fly? An addiction, if you like. Uh, 
It's difficult to tell if I'm hungry or <laughs> or, not or need to go flying. It's one of the two. <laughs> it can be hypoglycemic and irritated <laughs> about not flying. That is a Just very keep feeding me. <laughs> keep feeding me. I think it, it's one of those those things. You definitely, you know, a good day is when you've flown. I mean, I, I think that the. the Duncan Mia have essentially stayed flying the whole time, but clearly for Goddard's and his illustrious career, you know, you really, I guess you must have missed the flying, you know, doing those ground tours. And that, that must have, I don't know, then about annoyed you because you never get annoyed about anything, but that must have been, you know, at times mildly irritating. Yeah. You know, I had it the other day where I was sat in the big debrief in Red Flag and watching back this massive mission and and we may have mentioned it before but you're watching a replay of it with all the little aircraft symbols thrashing around as they play it in sort of 10 times and i i sat there and thought why am i sat at a desk i love flying i'd love being up there you know and, and i really love the operational aspect of flying as well you know the particular mission that they were doing there was about 16 or 20 F-35s wazzing around, F-18s, tons of red air bouncing them, you know, all sorts of threats around, people dropping bombs. That's when I sat down the other day and thought, oh, I definitely, definitely miss this. So I wasn't grumpy, I was just depressed. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I guess as well, it's how, you know, you get back in the cockpit, you know, what with being so senior. You know, it, it is a... And, and, and I know, Dunk, you know, in every series, you know, that's why you kind of scuttled your wonderful career, because you do, you just love flying. It's in your blood. Yeah, yeah I don't think I'd have gone same, very, much, uh, very much further. <laughs> well, so, someone, someone asked me the question at the weekend, you know, could you go back to flying? I went, well... Probably not, but then also, uh, I, they, I'm sure they'd snap me up if uh, if I said, you know what, I fancy being a squadronator again and go and be a lightning pilot or a uh, or a, uh, a typhoon pilot. Yeah, but you'd miss yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, but you'd miss. They would. But you'd miss afternoon cocktails, all the dinner parties. <laughs> I'd miss flags on the front of various. Uh, I mean, you say you like flying, but we know what you really like. Cocktail. Yeah. 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 Telling the uh, station commander to salute you, it won't work. Not now. <laughs> how, about, how about you, JB? Do you get grumpy if you're not doing rugby? I do. I, like, I actually had a sleep night the other night thinking, I'm nearly 40. I'm not, I'm 35. But I am nearly 40. <laughs> like, this is gonna have, I'm going to have to stop this stupid game soon. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm literally going to have to do that. And then I don't know what I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think about that all the time, actually. It, it's tricky. So here's one from, uh, do you remember David Wookie? Friend I of do. the pod, we bumped into him yes. um, uh, down at uh, Farnborough when we did the uh, the live pod, uh, live pod, the away day. The away day. Um, and now he he, he mentioned um, he says here uh, a mention about the loss of general aviation airfields would be good. Have you heard about the state of the historic hangars at Old Sarum? Uh, see at Save Old Sarum tweets and actually Old Sarum um, uh, replied saying thanks for the tag. Uh, the state of the airfields around the country are slowly reducing. We need to save before it's too late. We must save the Grade Two listed hangars before it is too late. So, um, what are they going to yeah, do with I mean, them? That's a, that's a real shame, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends what they're going to do with them. What are they going to do with them? 
Oh, no, I don't know. I must admit, I, I can have a look at that and, um, and just have a look at the old Sarum. Uh, because that's the one next to Salisbury, isn't it? Old Sarum. Yeah. Yeah. Down that way. I mean, is from much... what I remember, they're going to build a housing estate over the place. Yeah, um, I've got to say, like, it did break my heart thinking there used to be an amazing airfield at uh, Woodford, and now it's not. And it's say, I tell, I tell you the other one, which is really sad. And sorry, there's a Labrador on, on me. Just give me two seconds. Scrab, go get out of here. Go, go away. Um, the other one that's really sad is Filton, because Filton, I used to live right by a university down in Bristol, and that's got one of the lo- did have one of the largest r- uh, runways I think on the on the planet, and used to have all sorts of things flying off it, TSR two, and now it's just basically a commercial estate. Yeah. They, they, they took Concord in there, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. I actually watched that. It was incredible. Yeah. I, I've, I've flown to Filton a couple of times in the ship, actually. So they can still land yeah, things there. It's still big enough, but it's not what it was. It's very sad. No, no, no. I don't. I, I think I, I, I think the airfield's shut, JB. You can't do anything there. Uh, really? I thought they were... I yeah, thought they yeah, were servicing... Yeah. Were they not servicing... I think, um, I think it's closed. Yeah, it's closed. Hey, hey uh, Dan, do you remember on the, the 70th of the Battle of Britain when we flew over all you know sort of 50 battle airfields and you know big big in the war and some of them you could barely find you know and and so many were housing estates now and those are battle yeah. of britain fields you know it's yeah. just the way of the world isn't it it's, it's a it is a tragedy well yeah. they're nice and flat i guess aren't they so why not <laughs> um uh. Well, well I, I think I'll do a bit more research on that one, and uh, we'll maybe do a pod on that sort of thing, and, and come back and just you know see where see where we are losing the airfields. Um, right, this one from uh, Tim Selby: uh, Drone technology must make fighter pilots a dying breed. Discuss. Love the podcast. Well, yes. The answer is yes. Didn't Elon Musk? I saw Tim Robinson from the Royal Aeronautical Society tweeted um it must have been at some large aviation conference recently but elon musk last week or this week uh, um was uh giving a lecture and mentioned that the fighter jet is dying it is all about drone technology these days it's hard to disagree with that is it not well it isn't it isn't because you've got um tempest which is manned yeah, but it's also designed to be unmanned. This is true. It's, um, I, I mean, it depends. It depends how. I mean, and you know, look at uh, the current. I'm not going to say panic. We're not there yet with the the sort of uh, coronavirus. Um, but it depends how reliant we become on technology and whether we think we can rely on that technology. And one of the biggest issues, especially with fighter aircraft, is the decision maker in the cockpit because um you know in order to make those decisions you are have worked brain that is making those decisions automatically i.e ai or you have a human not necessarily in the loop but on the loop able to sort of cross-check those decisions and i think that's where we get into the ethics aspects i think that's where it becomes difficult because you're never going to have anything that is purely autonomous that could be designed to kill ultimately and I mean just look at the issues with self-driving cars out in the states and, and whether we're going to go full automatic on those sorts of things um, and how long that's taken on a pod boys I think we've done a whole uh, a whole bit on this on what on self-driving one of the pods Fortunately, we, we're have, and we, we talked about scrambling and you know you, 
I remember God as you talking about, you know, the boys, you know, for airline interception, just looking in and, you know, seeing what you see, you know, in the cockpit of the uh, possibly hijacked aircraft, etc. And we, mean, we've done we've done a bit on it. Yeah, I mean, I would so, say drones are a problem. Do you know what I think is a, a bigger threat to fighter aircraft? Uh, in terms of technology, would be di- direct energy weapons. Because all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter how, how manoeuvrable that your aircraft is. Yeah, you know, I, and uh, I, I don't doubt that something in the... Fe- Look how quickly mobile phones have come along and changed. Um, you know, uh, 96, I think it was, we were joking about recently that we saw our first text messages on our Nokia, not even 3310s, older than that, the Sony Ericsson's, whatever they were iPhone comes along in 2007, 2008, and look at it now. We can't live without them. So it may just be something like that, that suddenly we look back in 10, 15 years' time and we go, yeah, what were we thinking? We we can't see a way out of it. And it's we have... just when it comes to that decision-making side of things. And I guess we have been down this road before, haven't we, with strategic defence reviews when they thought, we won't need any interceptors, we'll just use missiles. Yeah, and, you know, guess what? We're about to go into a uh, the what's termed the integrated... View, uh, review at the moment, so we'll see what that says. Uh, excellent. Right, well, I'll bring this... Uh, thank, uh, oh, uh, there oh. is one more. Oh, there is one more. There is one more. There we go. Oh, in fact, I'll save it to next time. Simon Rankin, it is a brilliant question about the best um, worst or funniest your hat my office that you've had delivered or witnessed. So your best bolly, but we'll save that for next oh, time. Oh, that I is good. Yeah, we'll we'll that it next time. time. Let's do it now. Go on then. Do it now. Do it now. Well, um, my one was (laughs) when I was a flying officer, flying chipmunk. I've had a few, but this is the one I'm going to tell you about. Um, I was a flying officer, flying chipmunks up at Edinburgh, uh, and uh, we had the University Air Squadron. So we were on the Air Experience flight, um, and the University Air Squadron was over the way. And... uh, the, the University Air Squadron kindly invited me to one of their summer balls. And um, so I went along to the summer ball. I had a lovely time. And um, I didn't actually get back until mm, relatively late the next morning. Uh, but it was almost like a, a Thursday night. So it was Friday morning. And uh, and I came back as, you know, young flying officer uh, and not, not really thinking very much. Um, with my number five still on, with my bow tie undone and no hat, and wandered from the front gate to the mess, where I promptly went to went to bed. Um, but not for long, because um, uh, another chap, a guy called Steve Lushington, uh, knocked on the door, dunk, dunk, station commander wants to see you in his office. And I was like, nah, get out, you're pulling my legs. Like, I'm not, I promise he wants to see you in his office. I was like, yeah. And he said, in your number ones. I'm like, oh, flipping it. So I then hung over like a dog, get into my number ones and shamble along to the station commander's office after, you know, quickly shaving. And um, I say to the station commander's PA, "Uh, Sergeant, uh, there's a some mason here. Station commander want to see me? He went, "Uh, I don't think so. I'll just check. And I thought, ah. So he goes. It. He comes back. He said, "Oh yeah, he does want to see you." <laughs> so I, uh, I went into the, yeah, I went into the office and got uh, the biggest bolly ever for, um, you know, who did I think I was shambling around to his station on a working day with no hat and a bow tie undone? And I have to say, 
he was absolutely right. I shouldn't have been doing that. Anyway, so I went off to the air experience flight where uh, my, my commanding officer at the time, he said, um, he said, Flippin' Eck, you look rough. I said, uh, yeah. I said, no, I just took a bollocking from the station commander as well. He said, did you? I said, why? And I told him, and he said, watch this. And he rang up the station commander who was supposed to be flying that afternoon and said, uh, sorry, I'm afraid uh, you can't fly this afternoon. Um, yeah, I'm afraid uh, we haven't got enough aeroplanes and uh, someone needs it for currency. So um, I'll have to see you next week. Goodbye, sir. <laughs> so he cancelled his flying because you'd given me a bollocking. <laughs> what a good lad. Nice. That's excellent. What a good boy. When I was going through whoa, whoa, whoa. training, whoa, 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 You're not going to get get away with this, Godders. Rather than you telling us what bollocking you've had, I want to know what bollocking you've given. He's never given one. I have given a few, but fairly serious subjects we probably don't we don't want to discuss here. You must hang on. You must have you must have given some fairly flippant ones at some point. Uh, I, you know, there's casual ones as you're driving around as a station commander and people don't salute. And, oh, um, the, was it the, the standard that you drive past is the standard that you accept? I heard that from a man once. Exactly that, mate. Um, you, got, you, know, you got given a half full champagne once, didn't you? <laughs> 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 yes, that, uh, that waiter. He, uh, Real got, that steward got it. work again. Well, let's let Parky tell his first. I want you to come back and think of one where you've given a bollocking. Well, I've, give, I've given a few, but um, I don't want to talk about. <laughs> well, unbelievable, Parky. Um, I mean, one that springs to mind was the uh, end of the Phantom OCU. We got a little bit bing bong in the pub, and. Back in the day, you, you used to be able to leave your shoes outside. I don't know who did it, but some Batman or something, I guess, would polish them. But we... <laughs> you didn't even know who it was. We, uh, we set fire to this bloke's shoes. And uh, and then this one, the next day, he obviously complained. And then we... I, I can remember we all had to wear our number one. So it's like you, this court, about four of us, we sort of had to get our number ones. And, and it was a new boss, Dave Room, we'd just taken over. I, I subsequently got to meet him at the F4 reunion. He still remembers it. And I think, you know, we were sort of nervous, but sort of hung over. And when he got to the bit about, and then you burnt his shoes, <laughs> I, I, just, I just broke down with laughter. I, I could not stop laughing at this, this bollocking. And, and then next to me was shaking. And we all, we all just lost it. He just sort of screamed at us just to get out. Uh, and that was it. We sort of left the station, and I went to Lucas. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't take it. Uh, and, you know, it was it was very bad. Go then, God. Uh, go then, I, I, I guess you're not going to tell us about a bollocking you've given. So tell, tell us about one you, you've taken. No, I was trying. I was trying to remember a. Uh, uh, I, I do remember ones that <laughs> uh, that you don't necessarily want to hear about and not flying related on this one but uh, I, I have got a couple of stories that I could definitely tell at a live pod if uh, if we go and do that in the uh, in the next couple of months okay. but um, one I remember from very early on in my career was a spoof bollocking that kind of went wrong where um, it was very similar to, the, to what Dunk mentioned at the end of the where you cancelled the station commanders flying we were on a flying training detachment in the jet provost up at Lossy mouth of all places, 
and we got a phone call one day or the duty student got a phone call and the station commander um wanted to fly um anyway long story short we decided and in the end we couldn't make it work in the diary but we decided to spoof one of the guys on the uh um one of our students who shall remain nameless because he may or may not still be in the uh, in the royal air force anyway long story short there's a spoof phone call comes in from the uh, from the station commander we manage uh, this guy we make take the phone call um he the uh um uh, the trip in the diary or something like that then i muck around with it and um it the, this thing disappears um so it's not around anymore so then we're all sat there and one of our flight commanders comes in and said right who took the phone call from um uh, and this individual knew that I'd mucked around with it. I said, hey, look, how, how about we change the days on the uh, on the stage so he's not flying uh, on this particular day? And uh, he uh, – uh, so this guy, flight commander, comes in, stands in front of us and went right top of his voice. And this was a guy who didn't normally shout. He said, who took that phone call? Uh, no, who mucked around with the diary so that the stage is supposed – is flying tomorrow rather than today he is absolutely livid and he wants us off the station and i could see this individual who we knew we were spoofing laughing away out sat in front of me you know his sort of shoulders going exactly like you were saying parky because there's a lot of people start smiling when they're uh, when they're getting told off and i, I put my hand up and I said uh, yes sir it was me and he went oh godfrey and i said but so and so and pointed to this individual made me do it and this guy, whose, whose shoulders were going, stopped immediately and went, Godfrey, what? Anyway, long story short, this guy is now livid with me, absolutely livid that I've dropped him in it. And it is completely unfair because I was the one that had, uh, that had buggered around with the diary entry. Um, this guy is, go to, is due to go and do a solo navigation in the afternoon. I said to the flight commander, are you going to tell him before he goes? He goes, no, he'll be fine. It'll all be all right. And this individual is stomping around the place. I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to do some damage. I went up to the, him again, at the flight commander again. I said, look, I think you need to tell him he's pretty cross. you know. And plus, I think he may try and kill me later on this evening. He went, um, no, 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 it'll be fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll tell him before we go. Flying. Anyway, they forget to tell him before he goes. Flying. So this guy goes off. We're sat in the crew room. And this individual, at the point he is supposed to be airborne, comes stomping in and throws his helmet in the in the corner. Well, what happened? And he'd gone to take off, thundered down the runway, and had got, uh, you know, Lima Oscar Sierra five two abort abort abort. So he aborts his takeoff, and air traffic go. Uh, he goes exactly why do I need to abort? Thinking there's something on the runway, and they went Lima Oscar. Sierra 5-2, your canopy's open. And this guy had got to the end of the runway, was so grumpy and cross with the fact that I dropped him in it, had forgot to shut his canopy and tried to take off in a cabriolet JP5. Um, anyway, it soon came out, and how we laughed over a bit <laughs> that, that the spoof bollocking had gone completely wrong, and he still hates me today. <laughs> Excellent. Well done, gents. Well done, indeed. Right, any more? Any more for any more? I've, I've posted. Um, I've posted. I found that glider on the internet, and I've posted it on Twitter. Can you see it, Godders? Because now, for some reason, I can't bloody find it. But um, it's. 
an early glider, early VGS glider. Can you see it on there? Oh yeah, yeah, no, I can see it. That's the one what they had you... hanging in the in the um, uh, in the RF museum that we were... What's it called? Just read out the name to, of it. Uh, sixty-one VGS historic flight. Hang on. Uh, it's not coming up with the name of the glider. Yeah, I'll put two on there. Well, if you're anywhere and you're on Twitter, go and see if you can find it. It's, uh, it is interesting to see what Parkinson like, was launched off toward, towards like the open seven. goal in. It says a uh, Type 7 SG-38 primary glider. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Excellent. Or right. sli- or, no, I think the one he was in, a Slingsby Grasshopper. Oh, could well be. Hang on. Yeah. So I've, I've just seen Parky's first glider. It's making me laugh quite a lot. <laughs> I have flown that bad boy for ten seconds. Was it a Slingsby grasshopper? Are you not? Yeah. Jo- yeah. I thought you were joking. All oh, right, okay. You could still kill yourself in that Parky. Oh, I definitely nearly killed myself. Good God! <laughs> it looks like that thing they used to launch um, on the uh, German submarines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but I'm going to end this, all right? So, yeah, we're, we're rambling. You are rambling. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you for subscribing. Go follow us on Twitter, at Pilot Episodes Pod. You can go find uh, Godders. You are at, remind me? Godders Sweat. And Dunk, you are at? Uh, at Doug Mage, but I haven't looked at it for about a year. <laughs> uh, I am at Jay Beardmore. And Parky is at Lego Parky. It's not really Parky, but close enough. So, uh, thank you for listening. And we'll be back with you. When will we be back? Next month. Honest. Honest. Let's go. Next month. Excellent. All right, gents. Uh, have a good night. See you. See you. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.